Well, it is our privilege once again to come to the Word of God tonight, and I'd invite you, if you will, to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, as we seek to understand the truth that is contained in verses 3 to 8. Colossians 1, verses 3 to 8. Follow along as I read this portion of Scripture. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now you remember from this morning's hour, In the previous message, we said that the Apostle Paul was praying for the believers at Colossae. And while he was praying, he launches into a description of the benefits of the Gospel. We've entitled this message, The Gospel Truth, or the truth that is contained in the Gospel and the benefits thereof. We've entitled the message, the gospel truth, because of what Paul says in verse 5. He says, you have previously heard in the word of truth the gospel, or what they had previously heard, the gospel truth. And that is a theme that we have developed from this portion of Colossians 1 because it really captures the essence of of what Paul is writing to these dear believers in Colossae. He's writing to them and he's telling them that he is so profoundly grateful for their faith, for their love, for the hope that he has laid up for them in heaven, and for many, many more things. And He writes to tell them of how profoundly grateful he is for all of these things and more, And he writes also to give them a glimpse of the tremendous effects or benefits of the gospel message. It may be true that Colossae was a church in its infancy. And the Apostle Paul, through Epaphras, the pastor of the church, writes them a letter in order to more fully instruct them as to all of the benefits and effects of the gospel, at least in this portion. You remember this morning I said to you that there were eight benefits or eight effects for which Paul is writing the Colossians. You remember we went over in detail the first four of them this morning. You remember what they were? Number one was that the gospel truth elicits prayers of thanksgiving to God. That's in verse 3. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. 
In other words, Paul is so grateful to God that he can't help himself and launches into a praise note about how thankful, how much in gratitude he is to God for these dear believers. And if it is true to say this, and I think this passage of Scripture bears this out, that the gospel truth itself, once you begin to ponder it, once you begin to think of it, always elicits a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And that's what Paul does here. He thanks God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and is in a ceaseless attitude of prayer on behalf of the Colossians and so many other churches as well that he ministered to. Secondly, we said that there was another benefit or effect of gospel truth, and that was that the gospel truth engenders faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, he says, not only are we giving thanks to God for you, Colossians, but also we're praying for you and thanking Him since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. You remember this morning we said that the gospel truth starts with the key to it all, at least from the human perspective, and that is faith. Trust. Reliance. Confidence in. A committing oneself to. A belief in God that He indeed can be trusted. That He can be looked upon with full confidence and assurance that whatever He says is true. And what He says is that the Gospel truth bears out that Jesus Christ lived on this earth, that He lived sinlessly, that He died on a cross, that He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and now He sits on the right hand of God and He will one day come again to judge the world and when He does, He's going to ask this question, will He find faith on the earth? And our response, of course, and everyone who will be living at that time must answer that question. That's why faith is so important. And that's why the Gospel truth engenders faith because those to whom God has elected from eternity past will respond with belief, with faith, with trust, with confidence, with an assurance that Jesus Christ did indeed atone for their sins. That's another aspect or an effect or benefit of the gospel truth. Thirdly, we said this morning that also the gospel truth expresses love for all the saints. And you remember I said to you, that according to verse 4, it's not just a vertical relationship that we have with God through Christ, that is our faith, but also a horizontal relationship, and that is because we have faith in Christ, it motivates us to love the brothers, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, all the saints, he says, and that is a wonderful thing. As it is true that we have placed our confidence and trust in Jesus Christ, and Him alone for our salvation, that our righteousness is as filthy rags, and we exchange all that we presume we are for His righteousness. He grants us eternal life, and He gives us a greater and enduring faith, and then that 
spills out, as it were, onto other people with love, with mercy, with grace, with service, and with ministry. And then we said in verse 5 that there was a fourth benefit or effect of the gospel truth, and that is that it enlivens the hope of heaven. That the gospel truth enlivens the hope of heaven. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you have this faith and love of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, or the gospel truth. You remember we said that what hope is, is delayed gratification. But it has, in its delayed gratification, the wonderful promise that God will fulfill all that He said He has promised. And what that does is that it actually motivates us to express both faith and love, confidence and service to others. And we are very much to be envied, Christians are, because we're the only ones who have hope. We're the only ones that have the confidence that God will indeed give us what He has promised. Paul says in Ephesians 2, by the way, that those who, have, who don't have God are those who live without hope. They have no hope. We are the only ones who have a hope and an enduring, enlivening hope, the hope of heaven itself. Remember, I also said to you that this hope, according to Paul here in verse 5, is laid up for us in heaven. God's divine layaway plan. He's presently, even as we preach, giving us hope because of what He has promised and what He is presently laying up, storing up for us. And that is the fulfillment of all these wonderful and great and precious promises. Those are the first four effects or benefits of the Gospel truth. Now, we go into new territory this evening. Number five. Number five. The fifth benefit or effect of Gospel truth is this. The Gospel truth establishes the bearing of abundant spiritual fruit. It establishes the bearing of abundant spiritual fruit. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1.6. He says this Gospel, this Gospel truth, has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Paul says that the Gospel is about the good news of salvation. The Gospel is the announcement of God's reconciliation with man, and it is the good news which is preached and proclaimed to you. That's really the key to understanding this passage. It's talking about the word of truth, the gospel, the good news, the preaching and proclamation that God has initiated a plan. And that plan is to reconcile sinners to Himself. I mentioned to you this morning that there are many, many wonderful words in our Christian vocabulary. And one of those, as I mentioned to you this morning, was grace. Another is faith. Yet another is love. Another is hope. 
and we have even another in this verse as well, and that is the word grace. Do you see it there in verse 6? The word grace. And when it talks about grace, as we will in a few moments, it's talking about the grace of the gospel message. The idea that God has given us His mercy. He has given us His kind regard. And He has given it to, it to us in the gospel. The good news. I mentioned to you that Paul loves to bundle up all of these words in his Christian vocabulary and use them many, many, many times. And that's the same even with this word gospel. It's used by Paul 60 of the 76 times it is used in the New Testament. Paul loves the word gospel. And he ought to because God had so graced him there on the Damascus Road so that he might be the very recipient of that good news. I love that word gospel. It means everything to me. It ought to mean everything to you as a Christian. It's the hope of heaven that he's talking about in verse 5. It's the, the only basis for love that we can share for all the saints. It's the only way that we can have the true faith and belief in God that we must have. It's the only way that really gives us a thanksgiving and a gratitude in our hearts to our wonderful God. It's the gospel, the good news. You know that the word gospel, euangelion, was a word that had no Christian connotations when it was first used by Paul. The word itself simply meant to announce, to proclaim good tidings. And if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, it has the connotation that it was the announcing of a victory by an army in battle. You know that their communication tools are not like we have today. And so the only way that the entire populace could hear about who was the victor in battle and what was going to be the fate of those who were in that populace, they had to wait for the announcement to come. And the man would run through the streets, he would be the proclaimer, and he would announce that very victory. And then it began to be used both in the Old and New Testaments in a way that brought it into a God kind of context, that God Himself was going to proclaim the victory of salvation in Jesus Christ. For a look at that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, and it just gives you a flavor of how this gospel, this good news, is spoken of. Isaiah 40 and verse 9. And it was mentioned this morning that as you turn the corner in Isaiah, and this is where that corner has been turned, that God is proclaiming His mercy. And through Isaiah the prophet, God says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. You see, there was good news in the Old Testament. It was the pre-Euangelion, 
It was foreshadowing the coming of Christ, and it was indeed the gospel message. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says essentially a very, very similar thing. Isaiah 52, 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace. You see the language there? One who proclaims, one who announces, and He announces the good news of peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. That's the good news. That's the Gospel. The good news that God reigns and that He's bringing peace, that He's bringing happiness, and that He is announcing salvation. If we had time, we could look at Isaiah 60, verse 6. Isaiah 61, verse 1. But to reference a few of the verses which speak of the good news. And this is no doubt, by the way, what influenced Jesus Himself being a person who was intimately familiar with the Old Testament, he borrows, as it were, some of that very language when he himself announces that he, the Messiah, has arrived. And he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 5, when asked the question, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them in verse 4 of chapter 11, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he's just borrowing that language of Isaiah. The poor have the gospel, the good news, the good tidings, that God reigns, that God is bringing happiness and peace And He's bringing salvation. And in essence, Jesus was saying at that moment, I am the one who indeed has come to bring that very salvation. He says also in Luke chapter 7, verse 22, And He answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And that really was the note of the preaching of the early church. In Acts chapter 10, verse 36, it talks about the good news being preached. The truth of the gospel as Paul uses it, even in Galatians chapter 2, speaks about the good news of the gospel. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the good news, the gospel, might remain with you. And he links up the fact that the gospel, the good news, is truth. Just as he has here in Colossians 1. It is the gospel truth. And it has not only come to the Colossians, by the way, as you turn back to Colossians 1, it says the gospel truth was also established in all the world. Now you say, wait a minute. That sounds incredulous. How could he legitimately say that the gospel, the good news, had been preached 
in all the world. Wouldn't he be stretching a bit to say that the gospel had been that which was preached in all the world? I thought that it was the task of the church to preach the gospel to the whole world. And we have so much to do and so many people to reach. How could Paul say himself, even at that early stage of Christianity, that the gospel had indeed been preached or echoed forth throughout all of the world? Well, it's interesting. Even at that time, it was said, even by secular historians, that the gospel that was being preached by Paul and his band of followers and by all those who were followers of Jesus Christ had an amazing impact on the world. You remember from the book of Acts, even the secular religious authorities were saying that these men, referring to the disciples, the apostles, had turned the world, how much? Upside down. In fact, Justin Martyr, who of course is a historian, a writer, about the middle of the second century wrote these words, There is no people, Greek or barbarian, or of any other race, ignorant of arts or agriculture, whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgiving are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus to the Father and Creator of all things. Well, that's a testimony. Someone who was a Greek, who was refined and cultured, or someone who was a barbarian. Someone who was ignorant of the arts and agriculture. Someone who was in a covered wagon. Someone who was the most elite of the time. Far and wide, he says, there were offerings of prayers of thanksgiving to God. The gospel was being shared and preached. Half a century later, Tertullian adds, We are but of yesterday, and yet we already fill your cities islands, camps, your palace, senate, and forum. We have left you only your temples. In other words, the good news was being preached. And Paul, very thankful for the Colossians, is saying, I am so grateful indeed that you have been faithful in proclaiming the gospel message. In fact, R.H. Glover states it this way, On the basis of all the data available, it has been estimated that by the close of the apostolic period, the total number of Christian disciples had reached half a million. Can you imagine that in the small world as they knew it at that point? That a half a million people had been converted to Christianity? That's nothing short of a revival, of a spiritual awakening. And that was as a direct result of the commitment on the part of the Colossians to share the gospel. Abundant spiritual fruit. That's what the gospel truth does. It motivates people to share with other people what has happened to them. I've said many times, you could liken the gospel and what it does in you and through you to two beggars, one beggar telling another where he's found bread. It is... So true that the gospel grips you that you are speaking constantly of that which God has done for you. You can't not speak about it. The gospel truth is so wonderful and so glorious to you, you need to share that message. You remember the 
early disciples as the church was formed and they were preaching the gospel message and the authorities came along and said, don't do that. And they beat them and put them in jail and then they released them. And you know what the disciples said. We have to share this message. God will be the judge. We must preach. You see, it gripped them. No wonder there were a half a million Christians living at that time. No wonder the world had been turned upside down. The gospel truth, my friends, bears much spiritual fruit. And he uses that wonderful analogy of fruit bearing, of a tree, all of the things that would have been so familiar to that day. One man said it this way, just as a tree without fruit and growth would no longer be a tree, so a gospel that bore no fruit would cease to be a gospel. You see, God has a plan. And His purpose and plan is to bear fruit through His gospel. Doesn't Isaiah talk about that as well? And doesn't he also use the very imagery that we're talking about? He says in Isaiah chapter 55, and you know this passage quite well, I'm sure, Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And he's using that same analogy. That the Gospel is like the sowing of seed. And when the Gospel truth, the seed is planted in the human heart at God's behest and under God's sovereign plan, it bears its appropriate fruit. And he's borrowing, of course, the the elementary truth that you and I would know quite well, and that is you plant a tree, you plant a seed which becomes a tree, and that tree will not cease to yield fruit. It is a tree, and it is destined to do that for which it was originally designed. And God is saying the same thing. That's what the gospel truth does. It bears abundant spiritual fruit. You remember the account in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the soils and He talks about one soil that falls beside the road and does not bear any fruit at all because it has no root. And there's another soil for which seed is planted and it is choked out by the deceitfulness and cares and riches of the world. And there's another kind of soil that also doesn't bear any fruit because it doesn't have the proper nourishment. He says, however, there is one fruit, there is one abiding seed, and that is when it is sown in the good soil, the prepared soil, it will accomplish that for which it is designed. When you have the seed of the Word of God placed in its proper place, and when you have God doing His sovereign work, it will accomplish the message for which God sends it. That's what he's saying in Isaiah 55. And that is what Paul is saying here. He says, when you heard the gospel truth, verse 5, 
it came to you, and not only you, but everyone in the world, and it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. It is accomplishing the very sovereign task for which the Lord sends it. Doesn't Paul say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but who was causing the growth? God. It is God's sovereign plan. And as I said, the early church was extremely zealous. It says in Acts 19.10, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Acts 19.20, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Well, that's such an encouragement to me. God, if we get the message straight, and if we preach it accurately, God will do His work. God will take His Word and He will accomplish that for which He sends it. He is going to bear abundant spiritual fruit. And that's exactly what happened to the Colossians. They heard the Word of truth and it bore its proper fruit and now it was doing so throughout all the world. Now, application. What is the extent of our fruit bearing? Do we faithfully sow the gospel seed so that the fruit can be manifested? Is it constant? Is it increasing, as Paul says about the Colossians? It is bearing fruit constantly and increasing. What about us? Do we see that in our fellowship? Do we see people coming to faith in Christ? You say, well, that's God's sovereign work. He will determine that. Yes, God has determined the end that is the salvation of men and women. But don't lose sight of the fact that God has also sovereignly chosen the means by which those people are saved. And guess what? You and I are those very means. Our righteous life and the fruit of our lips. How often do you talk to people about Christ? How often do you mention to them that you're a Christian, that you love the Lord, and that you want them to come with you to church, or you want to share with them the message of the Gospel, that you have been transformed out of a life of sin, and that you want them to know the glorious reality for which you are presently living? How many of us would say, I don't often share the Gospel at all. I don't take the time. I don't take the opportunity as I know I should. Well, could it be that that is why maybe your faith is weaker than it should be? Could it be that that is why your love for the brethren is not as strong as it could be? Could it be that that is why you don't have the kind of hope that you could otherwise have, the hope that is laid up for you in heaven? And could it be that the fruit bearing in your life is as meager as it is because of the fact that you don't share the Gospel message? I know that this is a challenge for us in our day, but God has given us all the resources that we need. It is our responsibility to do that which He has called us to do. And when we do, we will see in our ministry the bearing of fruit in a way that pleases God best. And 
leaves the results up to him. Number six. Number six. The gospel truth not only gives us abundant spiritual fruit, but it also embodies the grace of God. The gospel truth embodies the grace of God. Look at verse 6. Paul says that the word, the truth of the gospel has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. I want to center in on that little phrase, the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. It is His regard to us. We were going our own way. We were devising our own plans. We were saying that we will not serve God but ourselves. And that if we could, we would want to un-God God and become God ourselves. And, just as it was with Paul, God opened our blind eyes and gave us a sense of His grace. I don't know how anyone could live their Christian life except in profound gratefulness when you think of His grace and His mercy. Shouldn't that transform us from grumblers and complainers and people who only think of themselves and their plight and their trials and their tests? As important as those things are, and as important as we should in understanding all of those things, the reality is this. If I were to live my life daily understanding the unmitigated, undeserved, unmerited grace of God, it would transform my thinking. It would transform me when I think of His matchless grace. When I think of what I was doing to shake my fist in the face of a holy God and to turn against Him in vileness and wickedness and yet to know that in His grace and mercy... He regenerated me and He called me and He's asking me to live a holy life all as a result of His grace. I can't tell you a more wonderful thought. The Word of God extols the grace of God and we should as well. If we could call the Gospel truth and all its effects one thing, we could certainly call the, the eye of the gospel truth the grace of God. The central part, the focal point, the key to it all is the grace of God. Whenever you think about the gospel, whenever you think about the good news, whenever you think about salvation, whenever you think about anything related to what God has done in Christ on your behalf, you think of the central focus, His grace. His grace. The grace of God in truth. And that's what he's trying to remind the Colossians. What you heard was the grace of God in truth. And he says, you heard of it and you understood it. 
And that's the key. You hear the gospel message, you hear about the grace of God, and then you understand it with the hearing eyes and with the hearing ears of faith. You understand it to the degree that God gives you the understanding, and then you embrace it, and then you are saved. Isn't that what Romans 10 says? It says that a person who is a preacher preaches the message and the people who are the receivers of that message hear with their ears and they respond with their hearts and they understand the message and they are saved. That's why the point is, how can they hear without a preacher? How can they be saved unless the message is given to them? And what they receive is none, none other than the grace of God. I think there's another point why this is so crucial and why Paul speaks of it as he does to the Colossians. I mean, there's one sense in, in which you could say, well, don't they know the truth of the gospel? Don't they know it very well? Haven't they experienced it since the day of their salvation? Why would he need to remind them? Well, Dick Lucas, one of the most uh, capable expositors in England, I've met him, he's ministered to me, I've had personal time with him. He wrote a little commentary on Colossians, and he said this, it seems likely that the Teachers, that is, those who might be casting doubt upon this gospel of truth, maybe the Judaizers that I spoke about last week, it seems likely that the visitors, he calls them, had cast doubts on the completeness of the Christian message as delivered to the Colossians by Epaphras. Since the young church had never seen or heard the great apostle in person, it would be easy for these new and enthusiastic critics to drive a wedge between Paul and his fellow servants. The impression could be given that there was considerably more in Paul's gospel than Epaphras had yet reported. So the Colossians would be bewildered, wondering whether or not they had heard what they had heard was an adequate account of the apostolic message. In other words, these Judaizers might come along and say, yes, well, Paul shared part of the truth with you. The other part is that you must be circumcised. Or the other part is that you must observe certain rituals and regulations and rites. Then you will fully embrace the Christian message. And Paul says, not so. What was preached through Epaphras to you since the day you heard of it and understood it was nothing other than the grace of God. Nothing more, nothing less. The grace of God. No, what the Colossians had heard was the gospel truth. And it was all the truth that they needed to experience in order to experience the grace of God. What do we do with the grace of God in our own lives? Do we proclaim it like this? Do we rejoice in it like this? Do we exalt the grace of God in our life? Or are we often thinking about our plight instead of the grace of God? And do we understand the grace of God in light of the law of God? You see, there's a lot of people today, especially people in the church, that want to talk about grace. They want to emphasize grace. All they want to talk about is grace. But remember, the only adequate way of explaining the grace of God is to talk about why that grace is necessary. And that grace is necessary because we violated the law of God. 
We've gone our own way away from God. We have violated His rules. We've violated His commandments. We have not observed His principles. And the response is, we are in desperate need of His grace. It's not just something that's an, an addendum that is brought onto our lives, and it's something very helpful and very beneficial for us as we live in this life. It's much more than that. It is the grace of God which explodes onto our life because we're in desperate need of it. Some of the Puritans understood this very well, and one of them said it this way. He said, The only thing we bring to salvation is the thing that makes it necessary, and that is sin. That's the only thing we bring. And when we bring ourselves to God in repentance and faith, knowing we've violated His law, knowing we've walked away from His statutes, and He's there waiting with His grace. His grace. Are you walking in the grace of God? Are you walking and basking in the unmitigated grace of God? I trust that you are. You know, some people when they come and they talk about their trials and they talk about the problems and issues of life, I must confess that there are times when I ask myself this question. Is your struggle really related to the concept that you may not have ever experienced the grace of God? I fear that in the church of America, there are loads of church members who are struggling with all kinds of issues and the main issue has never been settled. They've never received the grace of God. It's a sobering thing, but it's a very necessary thing because that's first base. That's the first thing on the agenda. I remember many, many years ago a theologian said, the task of the church is first to experience its own regeneration. How many of us really struggle in our Christian life because we're not really Christians? We don't really know what it means to have experienced the grace of God. We may have walked an aisle, we may have signed a card, we may have acknowledged in some way the, the lordship of Christ, at least outwardly and externally, but we've never entrusted ourselves completely to the grace of God. We've never come to the place where we have given up on our own righteousness, which is nothing in God's sight, and that we would fall on our knees and seek His mercy, and that we would trust in Christ's righteousness alone. What Christ has done, not what we've done. Who Christ is, not who we are. And that we've done the great exchange exchanging our filthy, wicked, vile life for the sinless life that only Christ can offer. That's what Paul's talking about with the, with the Colossians. He's saying, I'm so thankful that you've experienced the benefit of the gospel truth, and that is the grace of God. The gospel truth establishes the abundant spiritual fruit we so desperately want to enjoy. It encourages faithfulness and service. And number seven, the gospel truth encourages 
ministry, faithfulness, and service. Gospel truth establishes the bearing of abundant spiritual fruit. It embodies the grace of God and it encourages faithfulness and service. Verse 7. He says, not only have you heard of the grace of God and understood it, but you have also learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And what Paul does is he commends Epaphras because he was the one who initially shared the gospel truth with the Colossians and he was the one who was their pastor. He was the one who was their teacher. And Paul says, I thank God for Epaphras that he taught you that he was your pastor, he was your mentor, he was your teacher. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. He also says about Epaphras in chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 13, For I bear him witness that he has a deep, concern for you. He has much toil. He has great pain. Well, that is a faithful pastor. Would to God that I would in my own life be a bond slave to you and that I would labor earnestly for you in my prayers so that you might stand perfect and assured in the will of God and that I would have great toil, great pain, anguish until Christ be fully formed in you. That's Epaphras. And he's that model for us, and he's the model for the Colossians. The gospel truth, you know what it does? It absolutely encourages faithfulness and service, just like Epaphras is doing. It even says in Philemon about Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you. My bondservant, my slave, and my fellow sufferer. That's Epaphras. Boy, if you don't see fellowship and service and ministry there, I don't know what you see. And at the very least, Paul is saying to Epaphras, I want to encourage you in your work. You've come and given me a great report, and I want to commend you because I believe it is on the human dimension because of your service and your ministry. What an encouragement. In the midst of Paul being an admonisher and a warner and a person who is very, very charged in his exhortations at times, he can be so encouraging. He can be so loving and kind and gentle and sweet. And he says to Epaphras, and he says to the Colossians, our beloved fellow bondservant. Don't you know that that encouraged his heart? He loved Paul. You can tell that. And Paul loved him. And when he says bondservant, by the way, bondslave, the word soon doulos. And the word soon is a little compound word that's a prefix, and it means together with, translated in our Bibles, fellow bondslave. Doulos meaning slave. 
It's the only time, by the way, that it's ever used in the New Testament. Here and in chapter 4, verse 7. It's the only time Paul uses that phrase. Our fellow bond slave. He uses it in chapter 4, verse 7 of Tychicus. And he uses it here of Epaphras. He's a fellow captive. He's a fellow soldier. He's a fellow bond slave. And it also says that he is our faithful servant of Christ. Servant. Diakonos. Spoken of one who serves, one who waits on tables. That's what it originally meant. And can you imagine all of the things that would be invoked in the minds of the culture of the day? It says of a bond slave that that's certainly not the position that the secular world would have wanted to be in. And yet, when you bring it into Christianity, it's a term of endearment. Why? Because we are slaves of Jesus Christ. He's our master. He's our teacher. He's our friend. It would have been an honorable title in the church. I'm a bond slave of Christ. James Dunn says, implicit in the designation, therefore, is the readiness to hand over one's life completely to a master, Jesus Christ. To sell oneself into slavery was a policy of desperation, but not uncommon. But to a master whose power and authority were greater than that in any other master-slave relation. What he's saying is, if you were to be a bond slave of Jesus Christ, that was the good thing. That was to be desired. And that's what he says. Paul speaks of the same kind of imagery, this slave imagery in Romans 6.12. He says, Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of God. And then he goes on to say, Do you not know, verse 16, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? What he's saying is, if you want to be the right kind of slave, be a slave of righteousness. Be obedient to the truth. Don't be a slave to sin. There's no virtue there. You want to be the right kind of Dulas, the right kind of slave. And if you want to be the right kind of soon Dulas, be together with me, Paul says, a fellow slave of Jesus Christ. Don't you think the imagery would be vivid in Paul's mind as he's chained to a Roman soldier? Yeah, he's a slave in those chains in one sense, but he has a greater master, Jesus Christ. And that's what he says about his dear and beloved Epaphras, a faithful servant, a table waiter for Christ. Oh, I wish we had time to discuss all of the ways the New Testament talks about this service to Christ. It's so opposite of the world. You say in the world, get away from me, I'm climbing up the ladder of success and I'm going to step on you if you get in my way. They just don't realize that the ladder of success is leaning against the wrong wall. 
They don't realize that when you step on someone, it gains you nothing in eternity. The message of Christianity is exactly opposite. Be someone's servant. Be someone's slave. Didn't Jesus Christ Himself become the infinite model for us in that regard? He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. John the Baptist said, I've come to decrease, and He's come to increase. Are you a slave of the truth? Are you a servant to the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to give up your prerogatives, your self-interests, for the sake of others? That's what the Gospel truth embodies. That's what it encourages Faithfulness and service. And that's the Epaphras. The, the willing, faithful, slavish pastor of this dear church. Well, lastly, the Gospel truth evokes the Holy Spirit's love. It evokes the Holy Spirit's love. Look at verse 8. And what has Epaphras done? That's Beloved fellow bond, servant, slave, faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, He has has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. You say, well, it sounds a lot like the love that's talked about in verse 4. Well, it is, and yet it's different. Because there, it's simply talking about a love for all the saints, And now in verse 8, he tells us where the origin of that love comes from. It is a love in or with the Spirit. It is a love which only the Holy Spirit can give us in our life. It is the love that only the Holy Spirit can produce in us. It is the love that only the Holy Spirit can give to us. And once He gives it to us, we're to be a steward of that love. 1 Corinthians 13.13 But the greatest of these is what? Love. The greatest of these is love. You say, well, I don't really have the love for other people that I know I should have. How do I get it? The answer, Romans 5.5 The love of God has been shed abroad in your heart. You have all the love that God could possibly give you. He asks you now, out of the capacity of the fullness of that love, to use it in the service of others. The love the Spirit has awakened in you. That's the love we have. Christian love is decidedly regarded as the fruit of the indwelling Spirit of God. As I told you this morning, it appears first in that list in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. I can't resist this as we close. Remember this morning when I told you about the Christian triad of graces, faith, love, and hope? That only comes to us as a result of the Trinity, the Godhead. And that is listed here as well. If you've been attentive, you've seen it. God the Father, He's listed in verses 2 and 3. God the Son, He's listed in verses 3, 4, and 7. God the Holy Spirit, He's listed in verse 8. Faith, love, and hope, it comes to us from God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. The love that mirrors the love of God in Christ can only be aroused and sustained by the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is the only direct reference to the Holy Spirit in all of Colossians. Kind of interesting. It certainly is implicitly there, but this is the only direct reference. And because it is true, it is all the more reason for us to emphasize it. The Spirit of God produces in us a love for which the entire world ought to sit up and take notice. That's what he's saying. He's informed us of your love in the Spirit. And we know how that love has been manifested. It's been manifested in your regard and ministry to the saints. As we close tonight, let me ask you a series of questions in order to produce in you the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that you might change. Are you being submissive to the Holy Spirit's control? Are you endeavoring to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that His love is flowing out from you, through you to others? you love people with the divine love, the only right kind of love, the love of choice, the infallible love that only God has given to you to share with others? Do you know that love? Do you express that love to others? The Gospel truth, it's an amazing thing and it's just encapsulated in this prayer. It establishes the bearing of fruit. It embodies the grace of God. It encourages faithfulness and service. It evokes the Holy Spirit's love. It elicits prayers of thanksgiving to God. It engenders faith in Christ. It expresses love for all the saints. And it enlivens the hope of heaven. What a task. And the only way we can live it out is to live under the constant control of the Holy Spirit. You say, how do I gain that control? Confessing sin. That's what we all ought to do tonight, myself included. Confess our sin, our sin to God, our sin of a waywardness, our sin of a lack of love, our sin of a lack of the Holy Spirit's control, a sin of a lack of faith in believing God, the lack of thanksgiving to Him, the the lack of the joy of the hope of heaven. We confess all of those things and we commit to Him anew and afresh all of the things that Paul prays for the Colossians. And God, I trust, will bless us as He has done most assuredly with these precious believers. Let's pray again.